0: Chaos comes,
1: it's a chance to be initiated. You know, thinking that the United States and its ideas in church have come closest to reflecting reality is like thinking Iceland is the basketball capital of the world.
0: It's actually a psychological disorder. F-O-M-O. Fear of missing out. When a man becomes who he was made to be by God. Every day is adventure.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to the Anson's Podcast. Happy Tuesday, or Wednesday, or whenever you're listening to this. Got an episode coming up for you that's a little, I warn you, nerdy. But if you'll take the journey, I promise that on the far side, you will... Have a fresh perspective on the idea environment in which you live. A couple of disclaimers on this one. We were recording on the mobile studio, so you'll get some pee popping for you, audio engineers, and some dynamic changes. Overall, it's pretty good. Just know that's coming down the pipeline. Other than that, Sam was out, so we have the privilege of recording with our other team member, Justin. Hope you enjoy the fresh change. Without further ado, here's this week's Anson's podcast, y'all. Justin, thanks for agreeing to co host the show today. I always wondered where the mobile studio was. This is it, huh? <laughs> it says, it, there's sort of some built in ambiguity like, is the mobile studio intrinsically anywhere? You know, we're just going to, these are just the mental gymnastics we're going to do to warm you up a little bit. So, you and I had just started talking about this episode. And I realized it would actually be helpful for everyone to hit record before I explain what we're talking about. And I just want to say thank you for agreeing to come and have a conversation without any background. I think ultimately that will be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to the background. Where did this podcast get started? We did an episode recently with Dan where we were talking about glory, and he began, as one would, with being made in the image of God. And it made us stop for a second after the episode and go, how much do we understand about what it means to be made in the image of God? How much do we understand about what it means to be... Adam, humanity, existing in the two forms, Ish and Isha. But this really got started months ago when we wanted to talk about being human, human nature, because we saw the extent to which your view of humanity colors almost everything you think about. And then we had to back up still further because we went, oh, actually, what we... Well, what we want to talk about is the formation of a worldview that there is a, you can see in a certain way and that every worldview has to answer the questions of the who, what, where, when, why, how of existence, who are the meaningful actors, what does it mean to be one, what's going on, what are the stakes, where are they happening, all that, and what we realized is, oh, my gosh, all of these episodes can be listened to independently, but we're producing them at one time because they fit of last episode we talked about having a worldview in the way that you think about human beings will actually reveal to a large extent what your worldview is. And then we sort of forecasted that in this episode, we were going to talk about the our moments assumptions especially as it relates to humanity. Right now, what's the background noise? How do people in general think about humanity? And then we're going to sort of today outline two options, the, the dominant narratives out there. We'll reject both of them and sort of try to unpack uh, why they are not in themselves sufficient and then after this conversation and later on we'll, we'll really be jumping into what does it mean to be human what is uh reading the bible as like the story that tells you the most about your humanity what does it mean to be human in the terms of that narrative
0: are you ready I'm I'm ready. I didn't know it was going to be this deep, but I'm ready.
1: (laughs) I feel like Sam Sam would be proud about the quippy one-liners you're bringing us today, (laughs) (laughs) including before we got started. I've never been less ready for anything in my whole life. (laughs) So today, here's where we're starting. We're going to go... You know how like a swimming pool, there's a deep end and a shallow end. Yep. And depending on what kind of person you are, you can Chinese water torture your way out, <laughs> or you can just diving board in. And then by the time you reach the shallow end, you're totally acclimated to the cold water. Yep. We're gonna go in the deep end yep. in this conversation and talk about what we promised we would talk about at the end of the last episode, which is what does it mean to have knowledge of the world? Uh, In order to do that, we are going to take what I consider to be one of the most uh, brilliant epistemological, meaning like writing about knowing uh, pieces of literature of all time, which is the very end of 1 Corinthians 13 Bible quiz that I would fail you wouldn't happen to know what the beginning of 1 Corinthians thirteen is?
0: <laughs> I don't think I know the
1: end of it. <laughs> it's the <laughs> it's the love is section. If you've been to a oh yeah, you've been the to a wedding recently, love. yeah, yep, exactly. Sure. Snuck in there. Paul says this really interesting thing. He says, "When I was a child, I talked like a child. I reasoned like a child." When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall fully know, even as I am fully known. Okay, so what's that mean? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, (laughs) First answer, I don't know. (laughs) Second answer. Why it matters? There are a few things that, when I was, you know, really diving into rhetoric, epistemology, what does it mean to know? There are a few tools I wish someone had just given me at the beginning. That when I think about, you know, educating my daughter, I'm like, maybe she won't care about any of this, in which case we can skip this class. But if she's at all curious in what it means to know. Uh, I'm going to start with Paul the Apostle and go, isn't it interesting? His lack of concern that a child knows like a child and a man knows like a man. There's no baked in uh, value judgment there. He thinks it's completely appropriate that a child should understand in the way a child understands. And that a man should understand in the way that a man understands, even though a man's picture of the world will be much more complete than the picture a kid has. Yeah. Why this matters when we're really diving into the worldview territory of what's real? What's not real? How do you how do you build uh, an anthropology that corresponds to what God tells you about your nature? We actually do have to go at the end of the day, we will have a, a model that explains the world and that model will either be inaccurate or accurate in its essence. And, uh, apropos of you being in here, a great example of this is, uh, email. Like I'm curious about as you handling a lot of the tech side of the organization. What is the what is the problem that you have to explain to people uh, on staff the most? Is it, <laughs> I mean, they can be pretty simple, but is it <laughs> connecting to a printer? Is it backing up your hard drive? Seriously, what is the... I don't want to throw anybody under the bus here. Um, what about Samurai? You can just think of the Anson's team. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys are self-sufficient.
0: Um, Yeah, so one of the biggest problems we have right now is a new update on the phones, and we use our phones to get into the building. And Apple has a security thing where now it pops up and says, hey, this app has been using your location in the background. Do you want to continue doing that? And myself would look at that and just quickly scan through and be like, no, I don't want to do it, not even realizing what the app is. And so today is Monday, right? And so, yeah,
1: I've fixed three or four of those today. So this is perfect. How do you explain to a person on staff who does not engage the tech world what Bluetooth is or what that... (laughs) Like, how do you explain what it means to unlock the building with your phone?
0: Yeah. Well, I don't know. Personally, I don't explain the technology, but it's like your phone unlocks the the building and you're going to get this message that says this and when it says that make sure you hit continue. And so it's less explaining the technology and more explaining here's what you need to do.
1: Right, okay. Yes. And you know, baked in there. I remember the first emails going around the building where you went you're going to use your phone instead of a key. Your phone yep. is now the key to get into the building. Yep. Now the phone did not become a key that slides into a keyhole right. with which you unlock the building. But it's true to the essence of what you're explaining to go, if someone, if I were to go, so this is my key and that box on the door is the lock and I hold it up and it will unlock it. Yep. Yep. And right, yeah, you're like, you're, we're, we're nodding because we're going, yes, yep. exactly. That is not a complete picture of what is happening, but it's accurate and it's In its essence. Right. For some reason, I was having a conversation about how email works. And it was really funny because you can have a picture of how email works that is accurate. You're like, okay, so I type this in to my little WYSIWYG typer. And then I hit the send button. And it kind of gets packaged up as though it were a letter in an envelope, (laughs) sent somewhere. Somewhere sends it somewhere else. And then it arrives on a person's computer. Yep. (laughs) Yeah,
0: Yeah, yeah. back in the day, I think they even had an animation that made it look like an envelope closing and go in and,
1: right? (laughs) Well, exactly. So they had that animation because they needed to go. If you think this way about this communication, you're on target. However, you know, it's if your if your picture is accurate to the kind of thing it is, you'll be able to use it. So if you have the metaphor in your mind that my phone is a key and the pad is a lock you'll be able to get in. Right. Interesting. Um, But, you know, returning to email, uh, I've had, you know, I had some funny things happen way back in the old undergraduate days, working in a writing slash also people would come into the center with the occasional why isn't this working thing? Which is really funny because none of us were qualified to handle those. (laughs) (laughs) And we would say, go downstairs, you're in the wrong room. (laughs) (laughs) This is labeled that way. I just remember one story in particular. Someone wanted to, (laughs) to pretend that they hadn't, like, received an email. And it was like, if you really thought that conventional letters was a perfect picture of emailing, you would go, oh, sorry, your email must have gotten lost in the mail. (laughs) And someone would go, "Uh, well, is this your email address? And you will go, yeah. And you could go, well, there's no way (laughs) it got lost. (laughs) That's not how it works, (laughs) right? And so to go, okay, so... It's okay to have a, a picture, um, so long as the picture is accurate in its essence. Yeah. Right. We can like we can just track or we can jump around disciplines and go, you know, you and I both like, you know, endurance sports. And Sam and I will talk about like the model we have in our head. I'll go, I think I, I think of like, you know, a little calorie meter going down mm-hmm. when I'm, and I'll like have in mind that my body can digest a hundred calories an hour and I'll go, no, am I actually a car engine? No, <laughs> right, <yep. laughs> but I am consuming energy in a way that is similar enough and I do need to fuel in a way that's similar enough. Mm-hmm. So that metaphor can help because it's accurate in its essence, but you know, we, we could, we could. Think up some pictures of endurance sports that are really inaccurate and like, you know, that would really harm people. Like if you thought you were just a machine and you would go, I am just a machine. Pain is an illusion. My body, the machine can get through this. You would not make it through a triathlon, let alone a 50 mile race. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think, you know,
0: you say like, this is my upper limit. So I keep it just under that. Well, there's so many variables in that to where if you hit that limit, and theoretically you could go be you know above it. Well, you might crash even you know halfway there because the weather changes, or
1: because your stomach changes,
0: or you know there's so much behind that that you can't see.
1: Yes, for the philosophers listening, they're going, "Oh my gosh." Uh, this is the difference between naive and critical realism and representationism anti-representationism but there's a lot of history of people trying to figure out what it means to have uh, like knowledge of the world if you are Aristotle this is interesting you know he thought that all objects were could were could just be reduced to a matter what it's made of mm-hmm. and the form you know the sh- the shape of it yep. you know so if you're a brick the matter is clay but the form is whatever the three dimensional form of a rectangle is <laughs> a box <laughs> an elongated box <laughs> <laughs> a a pulled out stretched out box but you know aristotle was like oh you have you have direct connection via the matter the matter itself like you sense the matter and so you are directly connected to reality. In other words, you can have a complete picture of what's going on. But for a for a world where our picture of reality includes things like light bouncing off objects and being received by photosensors in the eye and that being reduced to electrical signals, Aristotle's model... It, <laughs> doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. So we still have to go, um, what does it mean to have a reliable picture of reality? And I return to Paul and I'll go, over time, our picture can improve, but there's a model that's appropriate to your season. And it's appropriate if it's true to the essence of things. Mm. I'm going to invite you to put yourself in the seat of the podcast listener. Just pretend you're driving in your old Montero, resurrected from the (laughs) graveyard of cars. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) And and you hear this part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Are there any questions you would ask to clarify what or why we're talking about this? Well, yeah, I think based on the situation
0: that I'm in and the things that I'm going through, is my level of understanding is it enough to make sense of where i am and what i should be doing i don't know if i have a real example but if i was struggling with something in my marriage and i never do but if i was just crazy example right i imagine that other people do and so if i was struggling with something in my marriage and i was 2 years into my marriage i have a certain level of understanding of the way the world works, the way that relationships work, the way that my wife works versus being 15 years into a marriage and having the same or different problem. I think I have a different understanding of where I am and all the, all of those other things. And so.
1: Oh, it's so, can, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I'm cutting you off. Now you know how Sam feels. <laughs> um, okay. So let's say crazy example you are having an issue in your in your marriage and mm. you know issue is something that we would throw quotes around i'll try to imagine that okay <laughs> this sh- one question you could ask is what is the story that you are telling yourself and is it mm. accurate enough to what is really going on to let you live well and you know one of these things is jesus will all the time Give a person, give me mythic pictures of my season. Mm-hmm. And let's say we've just moved moved cities. we were living in Canada, and I was like, we are these pioneers out in the frontier. And the metaphor was people in the wilderness, uh, you know, surrounded by threats, navigating together. And it was uh, it was a pretty accurate picture to help me make sense of my life. The problem was uh, there was no place in that picture to be fathered by God mm-hmm. because I'm a pioneer in the wilderness, yep. and when I start feeling really, really alone and angry, mm-hmm. I have I kind of have to go. But I'm a pioneer. Oh wait, maybe God, you need to upgrade my paradigm, upgrade the story, so that it more accurately reflects what is really going on, and what you know what's really going on is this very complex. I'm a young man in a new marriage, invited into a new city with God, and and how do you, you know, reduce that to a story I can tell myself that's still accurate?
0: Yeah, and I I think it, I've, it totally makes sense to me because two years into my marriage, if I was you know going through something and I looked at the reality, my reality tended, as I look back on it, to be my internal reality. And there is a lot more going on because I'm not used to being married. I'm not used to the, you know, these types of responsibilities. So now that I can look back on a younger self and and take that into consideration, and now I might have similar things going on. And I say, there's there's a reality, a story happening within me, but the bigger story is what's happening around me.
1: It's just huge. So... It completely applies season to season and how we interpret Mm -hmm. our own lives. It also applies to how we picture the world, what we think is going on. And this is important because we're about to kind of jump into, in the first episode of this series, we talked about living in dirty water. And the sense that we live in an environment and the environment is saturating us more than we would believe So there are stories about human nature. There are stories about what's going on that are just kind of out there. Uh, They've, I think the word by one of the creators of the internet was evert, uh, when something goes from being a conversation to two people to the idea kind of escapes into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And I would go, yes, we are saturated with stories. And we really need to look at who they say the actors are, who they say the characters are and what they say is going on to go, is that picture close enough to reality to actually be helpful for me? Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to, because I have to make decisions and yep. I have to instruct others and I have to do my job and relate to my friends and uh, grow in union with God and how I do all those things will be influenced by the story that I'm telling myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. Put on your jargon hat. (laughs) Are are you ready? (laughs) One of the problems, if you are a contemporary of Abraham, let's say that you are Jacob and you've stolen your brother's birthright and you're fleeing across the desert and then famously... You fall asleep using a stone for a pillow, and you have a vision. And in this vision, you see uh, spiritual creatures, messengers of God, and a ladder that's going up into heaven. And you know you know, you know the story I'm talking about? Yep. Uh-huh. Jacob's ladder ascending yep. and descending. And, uh, it's a story I want to know more about. But if you live in a world that is saturated with spiritual power You do have to ask yourself, what is the relationship between these two things? What is the relationship between these creatures who have a primarily spiritual essence and these creatures that seem to have a primarily physical essence? Mm. Now, I'm starting with Jacob because it's way, it's easy to start with Plato, but we just have to raise a flag and go, even if like me, you like the Greeks uh, because you think their helmets look cool and you like <laughs> swords, uh, it, you do, I, I do have to go, humanity is presented with a problem and it is uh, the, the spiritual intersection or the intersection between like spiritual and physical and how do we think about these things. By the time Plato rolls onto the scene. He's, he's ready to go. What we see is largely illusory. What is real is, is an immaterial world of what he famously calls forms. He makes these long arguments that are, are very compelling when he goes, why is it that you can see a huge variety of horses and still think of them as horses? And why is it that you can look at horses that are pretty different and most people could create a lineup of sort of the best to worst horse? (laughs) The great example for this is like the Westminster Dog Show. Right. And where they go the best of breeds, but then they have the category of best in show. Yep. What a crazy (laughs) holdover from classic Platonic philosophy to go, but which one is the best Dog. Yeah. Uh, and Plato goes. The only reason is is that there is a form, and like an ideal that exists outside of the material world of the horse, and we can compare. We we are in some mysterious way linked to the world of the forms. We are influenced by the world of the forms. It's compelling because if you if we were to drive down my street. And look at all the elm trees and say, pick the best elm tree. Mm-hmm. It's not unlikely that out of the 100 trees on the street, uh, the same 10 would be picked most of the time. Right. Right? And, and, you know, there's getting a real divisive territory here. With, But I'd go, yeah, isn't it kind of interesting that there is an acknowledged leading group of ice cream places in a city? And let's just go, hey, what's the best ultra running shoe? Real Wait, question. Have, do I
0: have to say that? Yeah. <laughs>
1: well,
0: it's made by a company called Ultra. <laughs> and you and I are
1: both wearing them. <laughs> <Right now. laughs> hey, that's a good that's a nice looking pair of ultras. Me <laughs> <You> too. <laughs> ultra, you gotta sponsor the next episode. This one is free. I'm wearing the Ultra Superior. This is the Cade. <laughs> um but you kinda go. Interesting. I mean, we're going to bracket this for later investigation, Yeah, but we can just say there is a reason uh, that Plato is so successful, that what he was identifying was true to the ways that people engage reality. Mm-hmm. You know, Whether or not it was true enough to be effective, as we were just talking about, is suspect. Um, because the real problem for Plato uh, and the people who follow him is the idea what gets reduced down to being called dualism. World of the spirit, world of the body. World of the spirit is better. (laughs) And then Gnosticism penetrates early Christianity and all of this stuff happens. You have problems with the resurrection as soon as you think that. Dirty water. What we're talking about here are the two things that are floating around. And the two that are dominant, regnant, to use an imperial term, We have this idea out there that we're pushing into first via Plato of being a rational, autonomous being. And we have this other idea of being purely a social being, which we'll get to next. That's why we're talking about this returning to Plato and the idea of separation. Here's an interesting story. You ready? I'm ready. It's the 1600s. And the Protestant Reformation is has been sweeping Europe for almost a 100 years. And drum roll da 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 da, it's time for a holy war. So it you know, it's 16. Let's say 19, because if I say that, I know for sure it's going on. But the 30 Years' War is going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a conflict in which half of the population of Germany is going to die. And it's, you know, 8 million people total. It's going to be one of the, the, the sort of per capita deadly conflicts in Europe. And a young French mercenary who is is desperate to be a military officer, has made his way up into Denmark uh, and is just working with whoever will give him a job. And so definitely by the time it's 1619, he's with, I think, a Catholic duke who's German, which is interesting. Most of the Germans went Protestant. And so that's our background. That guy's name is... Rene Descartes, the godfather of enlightenment philosophy, and we're still grappling with him. And if there's one philosophical statement that every person in North America knows, it's, hey, complete this sentence. I think... Therefore I am. Boom. All right. Do you know the Latin one? Uh, (laughs) Cogito. It escapes me now. (laughs) (laughs) So much of what we know about Descartes... Is mediated through his biographer, whose name I don't know how to say, but I'll say it the way it's spelled: Adrian Ballet. So maybe Bayet to the to the French speakers in the audience. Oh, yeah, we'll go with it. Anyway, this sort of academic giant of the end of the sixteen hundreds writes a biography about Descartes, in which he's hazy about his primary sources. So, uh <laughs> The story that we're about to tell, I do have to say, I'm not completely convinced happened. <laughs> <laughs> tell it anyway. But it's sort of, uh, you know, we for sure know what Descartes wrote, <laughs> but where he was and what he is doing, which his biographer, Adrian Bietic's, uh c- considerable license with, let's, <laughs> we know less about. <laughs> um, but so here's the scene that may or may not have happened. Okay. It's still the Thirty Years' War. Uh, Descartes has been an engineer and a mathematician uh, in, I think, the Dutch Army. It's the eve of this battle. And because he liked to go off by himself to think, he shuts himself in this room and uh, falls asleep. And he has a series of visions. Or maybe not. (laughs) But let's say he did. He has... Uh, these three visions, uh, one after another. And when he comes out in the morning, he has conceived of coordinate, a.k.a. Cartesian geometry. He's thought of it overnight. Uh, he's thought of applying the method of doubt to philosophy. Oh. Uh, this is all the same night. This is all one night. Okay. He has, you know, this experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but... <laughs> I don't know why I share that story besides the fact that I think it's interesting and that one of the giant philosophers of the Enlightenment is also a mercenary mathematician, (laughs) strange person. Uh, But years go by, Descartes starts writing. And as a hardcore mathematician, you can see sort of like the linear rational part of his brain wanting to go one thing should lead to the next thing should lead to the next thing should lead to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So he writes this thing, meditation on first philosophy that they make undergraduate students read at every college in the world, uh, where Descartes does his, you know, it's one of the most famous philosophical texts ever written. And, you know, he pretends to have written it in a series of like six days, (laughs) sitting in in his apartment in front of a fire. Uh So the example is always the wood fire in front of him. And he's like, here I am having kicked up my heels and I'm just gazing into this wood fire and I'm looking for indubitable foundations on which to build philosophy, thought. What can we know? And he goes, "Uh, perception. And then he applies the famous method of doubt. Can I doubt that the fire is there? Yes. Like, can I doubt that, you know, the thing I'm feeling, my hand touching it, is like a, is an Aristotelian one-to-one touching reality. Yes. And then he goes, can I doubt my doubts? No, because as a catch-22, if I doubt that I'm having doubts, I am having doubts. Big circle. And he goes, okay, so it must be that the only reliable foundation for knowledge is thinking rather than observing. You see how that happened? Okay. Yep. I'm I'm with you. (laughs) So let's do some, some active uh, listening (laughs) teaching. Well, what Descartes has actually just done again is introduce some pretty hardcore dualism into uh, the philosophical co- conversation The philosophical world Where he goes There's the the world of thoughts mm-hmm. Which are essentially immaterial And then there's the world of physical stuff yep. About which you can't know very much It doesn't fit together the way mathematical abstractions should And so, boom That's And that's how, uh, you know few hundred years of philosophy got ruined (laughs) jk Uh, this thing disseminates and uh everybody has to respond to it let's just say there's a big rhetorical advantage to being the first person to write something (laughs) and you know years go by eventually kant enters the scene uh and kant is himself pretty dualist when it comes to like oh definitely uh there's per, there's the world out there and then there's my mind and people use the metaphor of a meat grinder that raw sense static gets dumped into the mind. The mind turns a crank and out come thoughts and the thoughts are not material. And the problem for this is that, uh, you know, let's just hit the fast forward button on a couple hundred years and go – we have this idea of human beings as a predominantly rational being, and also as a predominantly dual being, where there is a body that is the thing to not be trusted, and there is the spirit, which is the best part. Yeah. It's interesting. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. We just had an article in Anson's Volume 3, on Gnosticism and how... We still incline to view our bodies as only problematic and go, you know, you come home and you, let's use the marriage example again, like um, you have another fight with your wife and it's like, this must be a problem of belief. This must be a problem of character, right? We're going to go only to the venerated world of abstract concepts, but mm. to go, um, what'd you eat for lunch? Did you eat lunch? <laughs> Do you know that? You know, uh, one of the great influencers in courtroom verdicts is whether or not the judge has eaten lunch yet. And, yeah, right? Um, But, you know, like, let's go. This is kind of interesting to look at the interplay of these. Returning to the ultra world. Mm -hmm. Is it accurate to say either of these? Is ultra running just a mental game or is ultra running just about physical preparation? Yeah. And it's
0: neither and both.
1: How? It's sort of that,
0: that thought where you say, well, if you believe it, then you can achieve it. Right. And there's posters on walls that say that. And it's like, well, I believe that I can run 50 miles, but if I don't do any training, I'm not going to be able to run 50 miles. And on the other side of that, I can train all I want for 50 miles, but something's going to come up during a 10 to 12 hour race or more that's going to throw you and no amount of physical preparation can get you past what you need mentally to get to that next
1: step or to get to the finish line. This is one of the reasons that I think that some kind of exercise is important for all people. Mm. Like Not just for what it does, but because it teaches you this lesson. Because there is this model floating around it there that goes, yeah, uh, the body is the bad part. The mind is the good part. Mm. You are predominantly a rational being and your rationality exists apart from your body. And I'll go like, no, no, (laughs) not if you've ever done a bike race. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Our minds are super influenced by what the body is doing, our Virtue is Im- influenced by what the body is doing. And if we're trying to outline an ideal of like <laughs> what is what is human nature, we kind of have to go, uh, no, 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 not predominantly like a divided being, not predominantly a rational being, mm-hmm. but a unified desiring being. Yeah, right. Isn't that fascinating? It is. It is very interesting to go. Um, some people will gravitate to the model of people as an autonomous, free rational agent. Um, Those people tend to be very dualistic. This view has really influenced a lot of the way that Protestants think about salvation. (laughs) We could do a crazy genealogy, but Aquinas and Augustine, St. Augustine, say it the other way, both end up being deeply influenced by Aristotle they both kind of go there yeah no the the mind and the body are separate augustine wrote a treatise on um, care for the dead he has people under him who have you know basic questions about what do you do and does it matter and he can see that there are eternal implications mm-hmm. and so people are go is it body key to a person's essence after they die? Does it matter what we do with it? Um, you know, like, Hey, my uncle died and then my other uncle wanted to use his body for fertilizer. Is that okay? Uh, and, uh, if you, (laughs) and you're (laughs) Augustine, so you have to answer this question and go like, okay, (laughs) yes, the body matters. Definitely. Um, because it's a thing that the soul has occupied. It's a thing that the spirit has occupied. Yeah. Uh, and so he ends up defending it, but we, but Augustine doesn't love the body. I'm just going to say his name, one of the two ways people prefer back and forth. And this is why Martin Luther ends up hating the book of James, uh, where it talks about that what you do matters. Yeah. Um, because he goes like, no, 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 no. He sees that you can't earn salvation. And so he's like, salvation has to be uh, only assent, only propositional assent to the sovereignty of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And then 500 years have to go by and somebody like Dallas Willard has to come along and go, yes, uh, salvation is about belief. You cannot earn it. And when we're talking about reality, your belief should make your life different. Um, and we, and we have to have this argument because, you know, it goes, it doesn't matter what I do What matters is what I believe. I'll I'll bet right now we could Google 50 sermon series around the country that are going on this topic, the interaction between faith and action. Mm -hmm, And the fact that those are conceived of as different uh, is, you know, all the evidence you need for uh, the influence of this vision of human beings as autonomous, free, rational agents who are divided between soul and body. And going back to the beginning of the story, we want to go. The beginning of this podcast, I'm going to go, okay, so there's a story that says who is the character? A human. What is a human? A human is an amphibious organism that has a body in which sits an eternal soul. And the soul does the thinking and the reasoning and the decision making, and the body is the the glove that, that the soul has put on. And we go, okay. Is that picture accurate to reality? Is that calling the Bluetooth phone a key so it's gonna work? Or is it actually very inaccurate? and is not going to help us live. Uh, And if you follow this podcast at all, you know, we think it's very inaccurate. Uh, And that even where the mind is has much less to do with the mind riding behind experience and much more to do with being embodied in an environment. You know, we talked about this famous, pretty unethical (laughs) uh, early study where they took kittens and they made this device where, one of the kittens was just being carried around by the motion of the first kitten. So it got all the same sense data, but it didn't also move and its brain didn't develop normally. I say wow. unethical because they really did ruin a real kitten right? <laughs> um, by going like, okay, so it's not just the sensation of moving that creates a mind. It's the yep. act of moving. Right. And, you know, if you get, if you get really far into the dualist arena, you know, then it's it's not a long jump to deny some part of the humanity or the divinity of Jesus, deny the resurrection, not see what counts, not think that the resurrection of the dead matters, um, not think that the restoration of all things is coming, (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, but just go, oh, and also be, um, you'll have problems being a wise decision maker, Uh, If you think that we're free, rational, dualist, autonomous, whatevers, and you are three hours into a meeting, a church meeting, you might just go, there's opposition, but it must be spiritual opposition. Let's keep making decisions. If you have a different idea of humanity, you may go. I don't think that we can make decisions well with our bodies being exhausted. So let's give everybody a snack. Let's get up and move. Let's see if we think we can go more. But we might need to call it a night because (laughs) our thinking is not separable from the condition of our body. Yep. Yep. That's interesting. Any questions from the audience that you'd like to field at this juncture? Oh, my gosh.
0: Like I need a whole philosophy class
1: to, (laughs) in order
0: to wrap my head around some of these topics.
1: There are rabbit holes you can fall down forever here on, you know, that, that first thing we talked about, about having a picture of the world. Goodness gracious. Uh, I wonder if, I know there are some of you in the audience who are going, oh, is Lane a hardcore representationalist? In case you're curious, now I'm a critical realist, everybody. Um, <laughs> it's actually hard to find your way out of some of these uh, when you get in. Uh, but the formative value of these pieces of a worldview is actually accessible pretty early on. Yeah. And it always has to do with the story. It always has to do with mm-hmm. the story about who, what, when, where, why, how. So there's one camp of people in the West who largely think of human beings as dualistic, autonomous, free, rational agents. Then there's the other view. You're a young Freud and you've enjoyed yourself. You're well-read. You're starting to think about the mind. And in the salons of Europe, um, you know, one, one of the fallouts of... The Enlightenment, uh, especially into you know, the, 17th, the 18th and 19th centuries, 1700s and 1800s, is uh, the creation of the original millennial environment, like the coffee shop or the salon uh, where you'd read books and talk about ideas and think. And people would kind of come through with stuff that was interesting, that had implications for the direction of like a philosophy of being. One such thing was hypnosis and hypnosis in Europe and the early psychologists, there's a famous story, and I think it's Freud, sees someone uh, undergo hypnosis during which they're told to go pick up an umbrella. Uh They're brought out of hypnosis. They go pick up the umbrella and then they're asked, why'd you get that umbrella? And they say... I was afraid I was going to leave it. Or they give some reason. They make it up. They yeah. make it up. They th- and Freud goes, what? So hang on. They have a motive they think that was the motive, but maybe it wasn't the motive at all. And Freud gets the idea of the unconscious, that there's a thing, consciousness, what you're aware of. But he's like, but there's this whole other part of the mind that you don't have immediate access to. And that's maybe where motives go. And he goes, you can influence it. Weird things can be done. Fast forward to the Nobel Prize winning neurophysicist, Francis Crick, you know, saying, um, all conscious experience, everything we know and experience can be reduced to electrical signals in the brain. And, uh... You know, the word in philosophy is epiphenomena, yeah. but you could just swap it with illusion where he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Like consciousness in quotes is just this thing. Like self-awareness is just this illusion. But what is really going on is a highly complex back and forth pop, 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 pop of, you know, neurotransmitters and postsynaptic vesicles and stuff happening on the neural level. I'm going to put a star here and go back in time to pick up one other thread of this. Uh, because when you're looking at Freud and the unconscious, and then you trace the intellectual history of that into, you know, inside the discipline of psychology, uh, neurophysical models, neurophysics, just studying the brain as a physics organism are dominant right now. They're super popular. Um, You know, the intellectual world has fads like anything else. Mm -hmm. And so the gigapet of psychology right now is neurophysics. Everyone wishes they were a neurophysicist. Um, But it's interesting because it reflects a view of humanity that's like, oh, there's not really a thing there. The who, what, where, when, why? You go, the who, an electrical signal, right? Who's the real actor? Uh, An atom. Or who's the real actor? Something subatomic. And therefore, you know why would you even think of human beings as something that have a will? Uh, what they really are are subatomic particles. and so uh, like let's let's treat human beings in that way. You know there's free rational agent um, and then there's this other thing that I bundled together of epiphenomena. Um, but let's let's gesture over this strain of sociology that comes down here. So, it is the Enlightenment, but da da like it's been with everything else we've been talking about. Um, if you were here for the first season of Anson's Magazine, you learned the interesting thing that uh, postmodernism is that a word you've ever heard? Oh yeah. Was responding to modernism, yep. which happened about fifty years before. Postmodernism, modernism was responding to the Enlightenment, <laughs> which happened about. 300 years or so before. Um, So this always goes back to poor Descartes having visions in his tent, whether or not it happened. And what you have, um, you know, you have Francis Bacon, you have the introduction of the scientific method, which just is like close examination of, let's see if we can isolate the thing we want to talk about watch It very closely and then mm-hmm. extrapolate principles. Mm-hmm. And then in come the early sociologists, uh, the Durkheims and Max Weber's and Auguste Comte, or however his name is, uh, onto the scene. And they go, We can do this with society as a whole. And we can say that when you see human beings, what you actually see is a social organism. And, I mean, this is fascinating. Uh, Durkheim, early sociologist, he literally said, uh, mankind is a creature of two natures. He has his own internal impulses and he has the social self. And he goes, it's the social self that forms the person. And so he's like, morality is the social self. Right and wrong is the social. Yeah. Uh, What's interesting in that to you? Well, just... um...
0: Just those two things, like there's the internal, but then there's the external forces making me who I am. Like I have to fit into this greater organism.
1: Right. And, and, you know, you can see the utility of this right away when you look at most middle schoolers and- Oh, right. Yeah. I've got two of them at home. Why are you wearing your socks that high? Yeah. How'd you learn to talk like that? Yep. Why is it uncool to- Vote for blank or think blank. Yeah. Right. And you would go, oh, there's what there isn't is an environment yes. that is shaping the individual. Mm-hmm. This is ultimately going to give humanity some very large problems. <laughs> um, but, you know, these are the cats who go, if you were like me, went to a public high school, then somebody at some time told you that there's such a thing as the nature nurture debate. Mm hmm. Of like, are human beings really like that? Are they formed to be that way? Which again, as soon as someone says nature and nurture, like they're holding out a story about the who of humanity, and it's sort of a raw material formed by, uh, like formed by this environment. If you are on the side of right and wrong being like a real thing, mm-hmm. you wanna know who your who your best defender is? <laughs> Who's that? Karl Marx. Okay. (laughs) Who we know because he was a... Communist. Yes. (laughs) Or was he? Um, Marx is really interesting because in addition to being like a bearded, like chain-smoking hangout in England, crazy person. I I don't mean crazy isn't crazy in this case. He was also empathetic. Really interesting. He cared about what was happening to the workers. And so, picture this you're trying to talk about the laws of history. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the one who goes, History is a science. And you can see that there will be a major movement, and then there will be the counter movement, and then there will be the synthesis. And then that will happen again, and then history will culminate in paradise. You want to do that, but also it's really important to you to be able to say some states of living are better for people than others. Mm. And if you are Durkheim, you can't say that because you've already said we have an interior nature, but then we have society, and society makes up its own values. And so, if you were to, if you're Durkheim, and you would say, uh, "The workers are alienated," Durkheim would say, "Says who?" All right, do you you see the problem here? Of If virtue is only social, it's really hard to make an argument on behalf of disenfranchised people. Right. Uh, Marx really wants to contend for the industrial worker in Europe. and so he has to protect um, he has to protect the individual and so he has to be an essentialist to a certain extent where he has to say, um, Man is a creature who has an intrinsic set of needs and a set of natural capacities. The natural capacities are best expressed through labor. And uh, through through doing your work, like you attain the higher parts of your own being. And he goes, uh, but capitalism, by making a worker just do work and not engage the fruitfulness of his labor, you're harming human beings on a fundamental level. and I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, I never have read an article titled Karl Marx's Empathy or how do you renounce religion and love humans at the same time. But that is Marx's problem because inside communism, right, you have this deep cry for, in quotes, justice of you are exploitative, you're harming people. But it's like, if you're going to make that appeal, there has to be like a baseline you can refer to. The early sociologists, they're all struggling with a view of human beings because they go, we need to understand what a person is and the interaction of the person and the social. And, you know, Durkheim is like two selves. Uh, Marx is like, oh, he's hes a little more like, oh, human beings have a nature. Um but in that nature expresses itself by participation but then this other thing forms that ends up eventually harming people and let's fast forward you know hit the century button on the fast forward recorder twice and go what ends up happening what ends up happening is is the uh is the deep ign- belief that human beings are predominantly Built by their environment. Mm The word I was looking for is product. People are mostly a product of their environment.
0: Yeah, okay.
1: And you can see how this would be diametrically opposed to this free rational thing. Because if it's like free rational, people make choices, the mind is independent of experience, and we all have the same kind. If that person comes to the table to, let's say, talk about a neighborhood that has a lot of crime, uh, it will be... You know, well, a criminal is a dualist being with a mind who makes their own choices and therefore, like, let's look at choices. And then the hardcore, you know, social constructionist would come to the table and go, no, human beings have a few basic capacities, but everything else is formed by their environment. Yeah. Like, just look at regional dialect or just look at belt buckles in the South. Just look at what counts as cool. And they go, there's no such thing as cool. Uh, it's so variant just look at what counts as good yeah there's no such thing as good like uh, just look at the variance across and so if you're like wow if there's an area what is it in this area that produces criminality and what we're coming to the table saying is going okay so those are two pictures that are both not accurate enough we're gonna look for another picture <laughs> um, and you know we're gonna try to find uh, a model of reality that is a better reflection of the thing reality is. Again, I just want to look at the negative form of both of these worldviews and go, the hardcore free rational agent person is the dude who always drives the speed limit all the time. Like, free rational, like, both of these, you know, incline themselves towards self-righteousness. But it would go, like, the guy on your street who drives 25, even when there are kids playing on the sidewalk, there's your free rational agent yeah. thinker who's going, like, well, the kids shouldn't run in the street. Uh, you know, your typical social constructionist thinker of, like, what are human beings? Creatures with a few faculties, but the biggest reality is social reality. Mm-hmm. Those are the folks who Dallas Willard kind of like goes at in the beginning of The Divine Conspiracy, where he goes, the bumper sticker, what is it? Practice wild acts of senseless beauty, random acts of senseless yeah, beauty. Yeah, yeah. And like, just kind of like the, be nice, do whatever. And Willard goes, how can you practice something that's random? How can beauty be senseless? Beauty is deeply meaningful. Or it's very hard for a person who thinks of like... There's no base on human nature. Everything is socially formed. Uh, that's really hard then to address things like rape culture mm-hmm. uh, or the stigmatization of women or people with disabilities where mm-hmm. you go, well, isn't value, only a relative social construction And you know the social constructionist view of people. Um, as being just a social organism. So what's real is society, then people are the things in there. That person then goes, well, let's just all get along. Um, And you go, what if you can't? And also, what if one person's way of getting along is murdering their neighbors, right? These are crazy examples, but they're helpful in showing where the stakes are of going, can you simultaneously say there's no human nature and let's get along? Like, no, you have to say, let's get along because it is baked into human nature to right. promote human flourishing. Yeah. What I think is interesting about these two is if we assume, like I do, if we accept that these narratives have shaped the world where we live, there is a lot of unpacking to be done in ourselves uh, of... Of how have those influenced me, and do I want to adhere to that story? Do I want to accept that story? Where we're going to go in the weeks, next few weeks, is, uh, you know, did you know that the biblical authors, inspired by the Holy Spirit, had a pretty clear view of what a human was, and that we think that that view is the best picture of reality? So let's converge to it. But in the meantime, very interesting to go. What is my view? Like, I'm curious about how you would answer, given like those two, which of those do you find yourself being more sympathetic to? Between, between which ones? The free rational yeah. agent and the uh, social animal. I, gosh, I don't know, because I can see,
0: you know, both sides of it. I think that we're we're made in the image of God. And so like, that's me, but yet I'm also influenced by the people around me. I mean, there's some things that I do what I do because I, as an individual, this is how I'm made. But then there's other things that, well, we do it this way because it's accepted. And if you travel even a little bit around the world, things are done differently in different parts of the world because of the, whatever the social culture is. And so I think in that light now, as I think about it, um, I am me because this is how I've, how I've been made, how I've grown up. But when I go to other cultures, I find myself wanting to be a little bit different in order to fit in to the way that they've accepted life to be.
1: That's such a good summary. And what we'll say looking ahead is there is another way to interpret both of those things. Yeah. And, you know, we can go, is there another way to account for the relative part of human experience mm-hmm. without discounting the unshakable part of our nature? And it's really interesting looking ahead because, yes, like you, I can, I can see both. Both yeah, uh, in myself of right. like, oh, yeah, that one seems like it has some and that one seems like it has some. Yeah. And it's kind of the invitation is, okay, well, of course they have some. They are pictures <laughs> that correspond to a certain extent with reality. And looking ahead, we'll go, okay, But can we find a picture Mm -hmm. of what is human that accounts for our experience even better than either of those? Yeah.
0: Well, I guess I just have to stick around and, and learn.